Amen. Good evening. How you doing tonight? Good, good. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 10, if you would. It's so nice to be with you. Robert, thank you so much for sharing your testimony and your heart with us tonight. Uh, Keith Manuel, Steve Horn, thank you folks for inviting me and letting me be here with you tonight. This means a lot to me. I'm a, I've spent a lot of time in my life professionally in academics, and it's just kind of rare that I've had an opportunity to come and speak in an evangelism conference. But all of the academic stuff that I ever did, I did because I was doing evangelism. I was just trying to learn how to share my faith, and that led to the need to do some, some academic things and apologetics. And so next thing you know, my career took off in that way. Uh, but this is really, evangelism is what this is all about and why we do what we do. And so it's an honor and a privilege to be with you tonight. Uh, my name is Jamie Dew. I am the president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and Lovell College. We train up pastors, missionaries, and all kinds of things like that. You know what we do. And it's an honor to be in your state and to serve you and your church and all of your people with uh, training for ministry and for theological work. So thank you for your trust in us. Look forward to hanging out with you a little bit tonight and spending a few, time, few minutes in the Word. Matthew chapter 10 is where we want to be together tonight as we think about evangelism and specifically what I want to turn our attention to here tonight is evangelism within this context of our cultural moment because as you have noticed, as you see on a regular basis, our world is progressively becoming crazier and more challenging and more difficult and we have to stand in that context and preach the gospel and share Christ with people and we need to think very clearly about what that means. It'd be the kind of thing that, if we're honest, we could maybe overthink. And in many ways tonight, what I want to challenge is our tendencies to overthink it. We perhaps could do that where we might think it takes some very, very specialized strategy. Or it might mean that we have to avoid some prior technique. Or it might mean that we need to really measure our words in every possible way. I actually think what Jesus has to say to us about sharing the gospel and being a witness, even in difficult contexts, actually the challenge that we have is just not to overthink, but just stay steady with the basics, stay steady with the, with the most fundamental things, and just go do the work of evangelism. So Matthew chapter 10 tonight, verse number 16, Jesus has been discipling the 12. He sent them out to preach, and here in verse number 16, he gives them some preparation for the going and preaching of the gospel. That is the immediate context of what's happening here in Matthew chapter 10. So verse number 16, listen to what our Lord Jesus has to say. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And at that point, you just kind of want to pause and say, well, thank you, Lord. I really do appreciate that, right? Therefore, he says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men that they will deliver you up to councils and they'll scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. When they deliver you up, don't worry about what or how you would speak, for it would be given to you in that very hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my sake. And he who endures to the end will be saved, 
And when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Verse number 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that is not, will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. Let's pray. Father, tonight, I pray that you'd help me to do more than just preach a sermon. I pray that you'd help your pastors and your servants and your churches throughout the state to do more than just listen to a sermon. Lord, we know our moment. We see the challenges. We lament the fact that our witness is not as strong as perhaps it once was. And Father, yet I pray that as we see those things and we lament those things and we come into this moment opening your word, looking for counsel and instruction, I pray that, Lord, you'd help each of us just to deal very honestly and straightforwardly with you and your word tonight. Instead of fussing and complaining and pointing fingers at perhaps someone else, somewhere else, for why things are the way they are, I pray that simply we would look in the mirror. We'd ask a very honest question before you to say, Lord, what am I not doing? Where am I not being faithful? And then, Lord, teach us tonight. Instruct us tonight. Call us back from overthinking and just... Once again, Lord, make us a people that are just doing basic fundamental things. In the same way that athletes talk about just sound fundamentals in their work, I pray that, God, we think about it the same way. Just help us to do basic fundamental stuff. So, Lord, we ask you to use this. I ask you, God, to use it to encourage these pastors and their, their teams at their church. I pray that, God, you'd use this to strengthen us and make your people strong. Lord, we love you, and we desire for your kingdom to come. We desire for people to be redeemed. We desire for the broken to be healed. And, Father, we pray that you would use us for that work. We love you, and we ask you to bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me ask you a question tonight as we start. What if doing the work of evangelism would cost us something? And I don't, I don't mean time. I don't mean money. I don't mean resources. What I mean is what if our actually doing of evangelism and just being the people that we're supposed to be, sharing the gospel that we're supposed to share, will cost us something in this cultural moment that it has not cost us in the past. We're in Louisiana. We're in the United States. We're in the South. I thank God for every single one of those things. I love it here. I absolutely love it here. I'm grateful every day that I'm uh, not just a Christian, but that I am an American citizen and I have the freedoms that I have and I can do the things that I do. What a fantastic privilege all of those things are. I have been someone that's been able to preach and teach and proclaim and share the gospel and do all of those types of things. And yet I've been able to do it without reprisal. I've been able to do it without consequence. I guess what I'm wondering tonight is what if things are in fact changing in such a way that that 
very reality will change for us in significant ways in the weeks, months, and years to come for us. I suspect that it probably won't change that quickly. At the same time, there are things that have happened in the last five years that just candidly, six years ago, I didn't think were going to happen. And yet here we are. The fact of the matter of it is, increasingly more, it may very much cost us something to be faithful in our moment. And I want us to think together tonight about that. Are we ready to stand in that moment? And if we were to stand in that moment, to speak the gospel into a context that many times is snarling at us because of what we believe, are we ready to stand in that moment? And if we are, how do you go about doing that exactly, right? This is the moment, as I said just a moment ago, as you're flipping in your Bibles, I think in this moment we have a tendency to overthink some of this stuff that because the moment is unique and the challenges are more unique than, than we've ever maybe experienced, that somehow that's going to require of us new specialized techniques and all of those types of things. And if that's our tendency to approach things that way, then I suspect that we are in fact just overthinking this a bit, right? What does it take in this moment to share the gospel with such hostilities of our culture? Because indeed, that is what we're called to do in this moment. I mean, the fact that things are getting rockier and more difficult and more tense by the moment doesn't change the mandate on our life or calling, does it? No, I mean, we're called in this darkness and in this brokenness to stand forth and preach the gospel and proclaim Jesus Christ where he is needed most. In fact, we're called to Proclaim the gospel to people that while they may snarl at us, the very thing that we preach to them is the thing that they most need. So how do we do that? Again, the context of this passage is very interesting. If you just look at the whole thing, we have a tendency, I'm all for, and in fact tonight I'm going to attempt to do expository preaching. I'm all for this, but here is uh, perhaps a flaw with this if, this is, if we don't develop another habit as well. We can be what I call bark inspectors. There's a forest and you got the trees and what do we do? We zoom, 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 zoom in on one particular passage and we don't see the larger context for a moment. Matthew's gospel is just rich with context. It's not just the passages that preach. It is the whole structure of his gospel that will preach. We don't have time tonight to look at the whole thing just look at chapter 10 for a second. Just the whole chapter, verse number 1 through verse number 4, you have a list of the 12 apostles. Starting in verse number 5 through verse number 15, Jesus now is going to send out the 12 to preach the gospel to the broken and to the marginalized and to the people that most desperately need Jesus. And it's going to be tough and they're going to face difficulties, and they're going to face resistance, and they may even face hostilities. And then the context is that for the passage that I just read to you. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, meaning this is going to be tough, so here's what you need to do. Tonight, let me just very quickly make four simple points about how Jesus instructs the disciples to approach that kind of moment in context and then try to apply that to our life, our moment, our context, and say, ditto, same thing. Let us approach our moment and our context in exactly the same way that Jesus was teaching the disciples to approach their context as they went out to preach the gospel to them. So four simple points, just straightforward from the text tonight. Number one, in verse number 18, I think we can see here that we are to simply be a witness 
Don't overthink it. Don't over-process it. Don't over-strategize about it. Be a witness. In other words, in my heart and in my mind, in my resolve, in my planning, in my intentions, just set myself on the pathway and commit myself to standing in the moment and being a witness to Jesus Christ in that moment, even in the difficult moments. Notice what he says, verse number 17 uh, you are to beware of men. They will deliver you up to councils. They'll scourge you in the synagogues. Verse number 18, watch this. You'll be brought before governors and kings. Why? For my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In other words, this is what Jesus wants his disciples to realize. Even in the midst of the difficulty and the, the, uh, the, the obstruction that they'll face and the hostilities they'll face... In that context, in those moments, he's putting them there in those situations so that they can be a witness, so that they can be a testimony to the kings and to the governors and to all of the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus sets us in the context we're supposed to be so that we can preach the gospel in those moments. You know, now that we think about that, note how we see this in the Apostle Paul's life. I think here specifically, Chad, Pastor Chad, my pastor, good to see you, man. Glad, I didn't know I was going to see you tonight. Uh, we were just together in Israel a couple weeks ago. One of the coolest places, in my opinion, when you're in Israel, is Caesarea Maritime, which is where, uh, you know, all these kings, King Herod would have this big, big palace overlooking the sea. Agrippa comes there, and Paul will reason with them as he's been arrested and en route to Rome there. And in the midst of his trials, what is it that Paul does? He opens the word and he preaches the gospel to the very people that are persecuting him. In his letters, he would often write to the churches to make sure they were encouraged, not discouraged over the fact that he had been arrested. And he would say things like this, I want you to know that the entire palace guard of the book of Philippians has now had the gospel preached to them precisely because of my chains. Simply put, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is that when you stand in these difficult moments, you are to stand in those moments as a witness and a testimony to the kings and to the governors and to the Gentiles. And then we see that very pattern take place in the life of the apostles themselves. They will indeed stand in those moments, in those difficult places. And what are they to do? They are to preach the gospel. Jesus said this to his disciples, in fact, in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends back up into heaven. Do you remember this? They're all worried about whether or not the kingdom's now going to come. Throughout the Gospels, they've asked this question again and again and again. Are you going to set up your kingdom now? now? Just to be clear, what they were worried about were socioeconomic political movements. What they were interested in was Jesus putting down the Romans and establishing the throne of Israel. They wanted something political to happen. And you know how Jesus responded to them? Don't worry about that stuff. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I'll talk about that in a minute. And you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, don't worry about the politics, boys. You just go preach the gospel. Friends, don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Sure, get every bit of training you can get. Train your people up as much as they can possibly get. 
But at the end of the day, just set our wills, preach the word, and to share the gospel. Can we have an honest conversation? Can we talk about our moment in the SBC? We're in a moment where I said this in my prayer. Look, I mean, we're all aware. Yeah, baptisms are down. Yeah, uh, evangelism. I think we just have to admit and own the fact that we are, in fact, less evangelistic as a people than we once were 20 years ago or something like that. And this is a moment that if we're not careful, we can try to locate that. We can try to identify why it's this group's fault or it's that group's fault or it's this style of evangelism's fault or it's that style of evangelism's fault. And I get asked this question sometimes. Jamie, what do you think about all those things? Here's the deal. Here's what I think about. I don't care how you do it. Just go do it. Right? You want to go knock on doors? Go knock on doors. Is it old school and is it antiquated? Maybe. Is it fuddy-duddy? Maybe. But check this out. Our God is the God who knocked the walls of Jericho down with trumpets. Can he use weird things? Yeah. Just go do it. You want to develop a strategy that's built most fundamentally on just having your people invite lost people to church? such that they don't even have to carry the football, so to speak, but you know every single Sunday you're going to hit them between the eyes with the gospel? Fine, do it. Listen, friends, I, this is the honest part of the conversation. I get to preach in really big churches. I get to preach in little small churches. In the last three weeks, I've, I've preached in churches like this that were full, and I've preached in a church of 25 people in Menlo, Georgia. I get to see it all. I get to see the old churches. I get to see the new churches. I get to see the established churches. I get to see the, the church plants. I get to see it all. You want an honest assessment? Almost nobody is sharing the gospel the way we once did. We don't need. It is not profitable to the kingdom. It is not profitable to the church, to the SBC right now. Most of all, just for the, for the lost souls that are out there, for us to be fighting over styles and such, just... Be a witness, number one. Number two, be a witness. Number two, be ready to take your lumps. I remember as a kid, this was a statement, this was a phrase we used to often use. You know, I just have to take my lumps, right? What did that mean? It means I might get beat up on, somebody might smash on me, somebody might really just make me look silly or something like that. Look, simply put, I think that our cultural moment is such that we all just have to put our big boy pants on or our big girl pants on and be ready to stand where he told us to stand and preach what he gave us to preach. I'm going to say something about it in a minute that we do need to be nice about it. This is, what I'm saying right now is not license or code for being jerks. No, but, but there's two sides of this coin. Let me just develop this first side first. The fact of the matter of it is it may cost us something to preach what we preach. And we're going to have to be ready to take our lumps. We're going to have to be ready to, to proclaim what he gave us to proclaim. Look, look at what he says here. Verse number 17. Beware of men. They'll deliver you up to councils. They'll scourge you in the synagogues. This is how he's preparing the twelve as they go forth to preach. Look down at verse number 21. You say, surely these... this 
these lumps will have to take. This will only be from external things. It'd never be from family members. Well, no, verse 21. Brother will, de will deliver up brother to death. A father, his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all for my sake. He even goes on to say, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, what are they going to call you? Look, I, 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 maybe some... How we've gotten used to thinking that because we're being faithful to Jesus, that things are always supposed to be smooth for us. But that's never promised to us. In fact, it's just the opposite is promised to us. When James and John and Mark 10 said, hey, we want to be the greatest in the kingdom. We want to sit on your right and on the left. Jesus looks at him and says, can you drink my cup? This is a statement, a metaphor for his own suffering. He says, can you be baptized with my baptism with which I'm baptized? This is where we Baptists, I tell people when I talk about that passage, I, I'll sometimes find myself in context where I preach and not everybody's a Baptist. And so I get to explain one of our distinctives here in this moment. I love it. We're Baptists, which means we mean it, right? I mean, we dunk those rascals. Why? Because the symbolism is rich. It pictures Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It pictures my spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. And it pictures also my physical and very real death, burial, and one day eventual resurrection. That's why we dunk them, right? When Jesus asked that question, can you drink the cup? He's referencing his own suffering. When he asked the question, can you be baptized with my baptism? He's referencing my death, meaning discipleship, following him may cost us something. I mentioned at the beginning of this, my entire academic career, I did not set out to be an academic. I failed two grades coming along because I couldn't read. Um, I graduated high school with a 1.6 GPA, had no intentions of going to college, much less seminary and doctoral programs and junk like that. Uh, I, got into I got into academics because I was just sharing the gospel with people. And I met people that asked me hard questions about my faith that I couldn't answer, and that really bothered me. I felt like I was letting Jesus down, and so I discovered this stuff called apologetics, and I start studying apologetics. I start doing apologetics. I quickly realized that it was the philosophical questions that bothered me personally the most, and that's how I ended up in philosophy and became a philosopher. I did not intend to do that. It just, that's the path. It all started with evangelism. But I say all that to say this. I've noticed a rather significant transition in my career. 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago for sure, apologists, guys like me, largely what we did was evidential work. Here's what that means. We marshaled evidences. You know why? Because the basic accusation against us back then, by us, I mean all of us, the basic accusation back then was is that you and I are irrational people for believing what we believe. Whether you're talking about the existence of God, the reliability of the Bible, miracles, you name it, essentially what they were saying is you and I lack the evidence and yet we believe anyway and that's irrational. You believe in God, where's your evidence? You believe in miracles, where's your evidence? You believe in the resurrection of Jesus, where's your evidence? So... When they said we were irrational for believing what we believe without evidence, what did we do? We marshaled a truck ton of evidence to them, right? Here's what's changed. What's changed is that while they, you still occasionally hear that kind of talk, you and I are irrational for believing what we believe, here's the big statement that they make about us now. 
now they, where they once said you and I are irrational for believing what we believe, what they now say is that you and I are bad people for believing what we believe. It's our Christian moral convictions that are, A, not only not the answer to our problems in culture, listen to me, it's our Christian moral convictions that are the problem in our culture. Now, they don't say it that way. Here's how they do say it. This will sound familiar to you. How dare you tell somebody what they can do with their body? How dare you tell somebody who they can marry? How dare you tell somebody what gender they are? Right? How dare you tell somebody that you don't think that their gender is not attached to their biology? Right? You see, it's precisely because you and I hold the moral convictions that we hold now we're painted as bad, immoral people for believing what we believe. And here's what that's going to mean for us. It's going to mean that our faith is less and less tolerated. It may not take the form of a physical persecution, but it become, could become a financial persecution, a, a, a political persecution. Look, I'm just telling you, increasingly more, we're going to have to be ready to take our lumps for preaching the gospel and every last one of us. As hard as we preach, we're going to have to re-up every single day to stand where he told us to stand and to preach what he gave us to preach. So number one, be ready or be a witness. Number two, be ready to take your lumps. Number three, be kind and wise. This is the flip side of that coin. Now on the one hand, you and I are each going to have to have a rather stiff backbone. You and I are going to have to have the ability to stand up and take our lumps and be a bit obstinate at times. Obstinate in will to preach. Obstinate in faithfulness to the gospel. Not obstinate and ornery in our disposition towards others. So the flip side of the coin is stand where he told you to stand. But be sweet about it. Be kind about it. Look, just simply put, there's no space for my arrogance or your arrogance. There's no space for us being rude or obnoxious. And this is fundamentally unchristian to do this. It is out of line with the character of Jesus Christ. And it is out of line with the direct commands of Scripture itself. Listen to what Jesus said, verse Number 16, I send you out in the midst of wolves. Therefore, watch, be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. It's very interesting here that Jesus uses the animal kingdom to teach us about our context and our approach. We are like sheep, which are harmless, going out to the wolves, which are not harmless. They have fangs and claws and the sheep are defenseless, right? They can't, they, they don't hunt. They can't run fast. They, they can't outfox the fox or anything else like that. And the wolf just has all the advantages here. Jesus is using this to teach us what our situation is like. He tells us, therefore, he uses two other animals now to teach us about our approach. We're to be wise as that serpent, right? And harmless as a dove. Now, what's interesting about this is that the serpent throughout the Bible is never really portrayed in any kind of positive way, right? I mean, almost universally, with the exception of like this passage, 
Serpents are always cast for us in the Bible in a very negative way. Genesis chapter 3 in particular, you remember the story. Genesis chapter 1, we have the story of creation writ large, right? It's a broad, overarching explanation of creation itself. Genesis chapter 2, creation's retold, specifically focused in and zoomed in on Adam and Eve and humankind. And we learn about where man came from, where woman comes from, and this great, wonderful marital union that God has given us. There are warnings there. There's lots of blessings and instruction there about the purpose of our life and God's intentions for us. But there is that warning in Genesis chapter 2, verse number 16 and 17, of all the trees you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And Genesis chapter 3 begins with a serpent slithering through the garden. A rebellion is already afoot. Part of creation has already, part of the creatures have already rebelled against God and turned from Him. And now the serpent slithers into the garden to do what? To tempt, to twist, and to contort. And now Jesus is telling us to be wise as the serpent. Like, why would you reference this? I'd want to know. Well, certainly what Jesus is not in picturing here is us modeling the moral constitution of the serpent, but rather the wisdom and the craftiness of that serpent. Look, say about him what you want. He's crafty and cunning. He knows how to navigate in the situation. He knows how to navigate and bring about what he seeks to bring about with no harm to himself, at least not yet. And now Jesus instructs us to have that kind of wisdom. This is not a moral playing of games or anything else like that, but it is having the supernatural ability to navigate difficult circumstances in each moment. The truth of the matter of it is, friends, our context and the difficulties we face are so multifaceted and change so rapidly that it will be impossible for me and for you or for all of us to develop an ironclad strategy that's foolproof that we can navigate every situation. You can't. You and I just have to stand boots on the ground in each moment, in those difficult moments, and be wise with divine wisdom. Now here's the bad news. I don't have that kind of wisdom, and neither do you. Because we're like sheep, remember? Sheep are not just vulnerable to the wolf. Sheep are kind of, they lack intelligence. Let's just say it that way. But there is a promise for us. Here's the good news. James chapter 1. If any man or woman, obviously implied there, lacks wisdom. Remember that? You remember that promise? If any of us lacks wisdom, what are we instructed to do here? Ask Ask of God. Now, once again, we're Baptists, right? We don't affirm this name it, claim it garbage, right? I remember somebody told me once, man, I feel like God has told me I'm going to have a Ferrari, so I'm naming it and I'm claiming it. And I looked at him and I said, buddy, you're not getting a Ferrari. It just doesn't work that way. But actually on the wisdom thing, this is kind of a name it, claim it moment. If anyone lacks, listen to what he says. 
Let them ask of God, who, this is the encouraging part of the, the instruction, who gives to all liberally without reproach, meaning he will pour it out upon you and he's not going to reproach you. He's not going to rebuke you because you don't know how to do this. It's like a child asking his parent, Mom, how do I do this? And getting scolded for asking the question. God is promising us, I'll never scold you for seeking wisdom from me. And I'll pour it out on you if you ask. But now here's the name it, claim it part. But if you're going to ask, you better believe. You better believe that he's going to give it to you. Because if you don't, you're like a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. And then here's a promise. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Jesus instructs his disciples, you are to be wise as a serpent. I don't have that, but I'm instructed in the scriptures on where to get it. And I'm supposed to be, now watch this, not just wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. Listen to me, listen to me. Baptists, we need to hear this for a moment. Doves don't hurt people. Doves just don't hurt people. It's not what they do. There's a kindness, a gentleness, that is supposed to be ingrained within our witness. Now, maybe we're nicer to lost people than we are to each other. Maybe. I hope. I hope, but we have to take a moment here just to acknowledge that this has been rough. And I understand there's things to be talked about. I understand there's things to be discussed. Yeah, we got, and we've got to do that. We've absolutely got to do that. Well, we also got to remember that the world is watching. And how we interact with each other and how we communicate, it matters. Listen, our witness, we're supposed to stand where he told us to stand. We're to preach what he gave us to preach. We're to hold forth what he gave us to hold forth. And yet we're also supposed to embody and model the gracious disposition of the Lord who's redeemed us. Listen, we can't claim to be followers of Jesus if we are only taking the content of what he taught and then behaving like the devil. To follow Jesus means you follow him in what he taught, where he goes, and how he does it. So Baptists, let's return again to the reading of Scripture, the Gospels in particular, and paying acute attention not just to what he taught us, but how. How he actually loved people. How he demonstrated compassion and, and, and kindness and graciousness to them. So, be a witness, be ready to take your lumps, be wise and be kind, and fourth and finally, be dependent. Be dependent. Notice what the Bible says, verse number 19. When they deliver you up, don't worry. Don't worry about how or what you should speak. Remember, we're going to overthink it, aren't we? It will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. It's not you who speak, but your Father who speaks in you. You know, I suspect that for many of you, something has happened that's happened to me. Here it is. I'm grateful for every bit of this stuff I'm about to describe 
but there's an unintended and unexpected liability in it. Each one of us has preached and preached and preached hundreds of times, right? You've taught, you've preached, you've shared the gospel, you've baptized people, you've interred the dead, you've, you've done all these things and you've got so much experience. Some of you have gone to school and you've gotten your education. Some of you hold positions and you have titles that are great. And I'm, I have those things. I've done those things and I'm grateful for every single one of them. But could it be that those things are an unintended and an un unexpected liability for us? Could it be that it's those things which are good in themselves become for us stealers of divine power? Here's why. Well, because now I am educated. And because now, well, I am experienced. And because I do know what I'm doing when I walk into these moments. I just walk into those moments. And perhaps I've lost in the earning of degrees, the holding of positions, and the repeated sermons I have preached and preached and preached. I have gained an experience and an expertise that, frankly, very few other people will have. And I've forgotten that real sense of dependence. In every single act of ministry that I do, in every single bit of communication of the gospel that I'll ever do, I have forgotten this most essential thing. That it is through divine power and divine power alone that anything I ever do has any power or any ability to transform lives. You know, Jesus said it this way, going back to that Acts chapter 1 passage, verse 8. You shall receive power. When you get your MDiv. Nope. You receive power when you become a pastor. Nope. <laughs> you receive power when you get a lot of experience. Nope. You receive power when fill in the blank. We get a new program. We get new technology. We develop a new strategy. No. 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 You'll receive power. 18-year-old kid with none of that. Or you'll receive power. Pastor so-and-so of 60 years have done it all your whole life. You'll receive power when and only when the Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Right? Look, I, I remember as an 18-year-old kid, man. Oh, gosh, I remember this so well. I told you a little bit about my story. I'm not going to go back into much more detail right here, just to, as a sort of a refresher. I mean, I, I did not set out to be an academic. Um, I actually wanted to go into the military, um, and I, or I wanted to be a mechanic or something like that. That's what I wanted to do. And then at the age of 18 years old, between my junior and senior year in high school, God just radically changed me. And I fell so deeply, deeply, deeply in love with Jesus. I had no degrees. I had no titles. I came from a poor blue-collar family. I was not much. I was. I was, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has chosen the foolish things of this world. That was me. 
And I remember sharing my faith with people. I can remember preaching the gospel to people. I can remember struggling with sin. I can remember all those things and just journaling it and pouring my heart out to God every single day in my prayer life, in my Bible reading, and in my journaling, just pouring my heart out to God. And there was, my dear friends, a power on my life. A great, mighty power on my life that I grew to forget. In the earning of my degrees, I went on to get a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. Got a phenomenal education at Tacoa Falls College in Georgia. My girlfriend, then fiance, and ultimately my wife was in the Raleigh-Durham area. I'm from like 10 minutes from Southeastern Seminary. None of the other seminaries had a shot on me at all, so I was going to go back to Southeastern, and I did, and I did my MDiv there, and I earned a bachelor's degree in biblical studies, and then I did an MDiv in pastoral ministries and took a lot of apologetics and philosophy. I went on to do a, you know, a PhD in, in theological studies with an emphasis in philosophy of religion and all kinds of other nerdy stuff. And I uh, started pastoring a church where I preached a different expository sermon every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And I did lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of theological work and biblical work and philosophical work. And I've spent the last 28 years of my life loading the gun, so to speak. Does that make sense? And uh, I'm grateful for every bit of that. And there's a real sense in which I spent my life unknowing that I was actually doing that at the time, but just drilling my cisterns deeply. And the Lord uses that. I draw on it all the time, every single day. But let me be clear. There was never in the doing of those degrees and the holding of those positions, there was never again a power on my life like when I was 18 years old. And I've spent the last 12 years of my life just trying to scratch and claw back to that 18-year-old kid. Be dependent. Pastor, one of the biggest problems we have is familiarity with God. We're so used to it, we can pray on autopilot, right? You are that person in your life. Come Thanksgiving, you're saying the family prayer, right? You're going to do the weddings. You're going to do the funerals. We're all that guy. And we're so used to it that you and I can pray without thinking. And dear friend, that is a problem. That is a deep, profound problem. When we can utter words to the Almighty and our heart or mind never be engaged. We need to get back. Don't you remember who you were? Don't you remember who you were when you first came to faith? Don't you remember how desperate you were? Don't you remember how dependent you were? Don't you remember how you prayed? Don't you remember how you begged God, please do use me? Don't you remember how you begged God to speak through you every time you got up to preach? Don't you remember what a nervous wreck you were every single time you got up to preach? And yeah, it was clumsy and it was awkward and it was clunky and you've gotten so much better at it. And yet at the same time, there was a beauty. There was a profound beauty upon the clumsy work that you did back then because it was so authentic. It was just you loving God and pursuing God and walking with Him and begging Him to be at work in your life. And brothers, sisters, I, let's go back to that. Look, our moment is tough. And it's crazy. And it's hostile. So what? Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it.
Jesus was talking to the disciples about going into exactly that kind of stuff. And he basically says, when you get into those tough spots, you're to be a witness. So be a witness. Be ready to take your lumps. They're going to deliver you over to bad places. It may cost you something. That's okay. Be wise and be kind. And be dependent. And you know what, friends? Our ministries may never be perfect. They won't be. But I trust if that's who we are, we stand in those moments, God's going to use us in a profound way. Amen? Father, bless my friends. Bless me in this work. Lord, we love you so much, and we are delighted and grateful that we get to be your children, that we get to walk with you and serve you. I thank you, God, just joining with Robert's comments earlier. It's because of these people, these people, precious, wonderful servants that do what they do and are about what they're about, that are going and doing what they're doing, that, Lord, your kingdom is unfolding. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us a greater efficacy in that work. Lord, help us not to overthink, but just very simply to be the people that you've called us to be in the moment. We love you. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.